Father, thank you so much for a beautiful Sunday morning and bringing us out to your house to study your word, to be challenged and encouraged by what you have to say to us. I pray that you'd open minds and hearts and give us an understanding in what we're studying today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've been studying the organization and officers of the church, and last week we got partway through the, um, the idea of the elder, or the, and of course the elder is the same as what? Which is the same as pastor. So elder, pastor, bishop, same thing. Elder refers to his spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity, interestingly, um, even in the scripture, spiritual maturity has a loose connection with what? His age, right? Technically, who would you expect to be more spiritually mature? A young guy or an older guy? Generally. Generally, generally older. And also, well, of course, it's not a, it's not a guilt-edged absolute. But generally, the older a person is, generally, the more mature the person is. Generally, the more emotionally stable the person is. So generally, the more spiritually mature a person is. But there's exceptions. And in the scriptures, it's interesting. Um, you are not really considered mature until you're about 30 or so. Um, that's about what it was in New Testament times. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be 25 and a pastor. That's not what it's saying. Everybody's different, right? But generally, the more mature the person is, the older the person is, the more spiritually mature the person is. And so elder refers to the, it comes from presbyteros, which is age, old. It means to be a little older. And it's referring to his spiritually mature character. Episcopos, or bishop, refers to his activity of oversight. What is the pastor to do? He is to oversee the flock as an under-shepherd, right? He's not to lord it over the flock. That's what it says in the scripture. You're not to lord over the flock. You're not to be Mr. King, potentate, almighty, in charge of everything in the church, but you are to lead. And, and how, how best do you lead? What's the best way of leadership? By example, by being. And, and that's really what Paul is bringing out here in Timothy and Titus, is that your leadership is really, should be derived from your actions, your character, your, your own example. You're to be an example to the flock. And you're, you're, it's a high example. It's not a low one. It's a high one. And what you'll find is that the lower a person, or if you look at a congregation, the lower the expectation of the pastor, the more spiritually immature and weak that church is. Why? Because you want the mature ones to lead the church. And then, of course, poemen or pastor refers to his activity of shepherding. What is it, what it, what's the three major activities of a shepherd? Feed the flock. Care of the flock. Lead the flock. Weed. weed. Lead, feed, weed. All right. You're to lead the flock of God. And you're to lead them where? And, and where do you get that? The Word of God. You lead them in the Word. That, that's, that's where you lead them. And you feed them what? The word. the word of God. And you weed when there's a little weed that crops up or some issue in the church. You might have to go and you might have to yank that thing out. And that's part of the job of a pastor. Part of his, his responsibility before God is to care for the flock. And sometimes that's a very positive caring. Sometimes there's a negative caring as well, right? Sometimes you have to enact maybe church discipline or you have to confront some kind of theological error in the church that 
has a, that has a danger of really ruining the church. And this is interesting. As you look at the first few centuries of the church, go back to 80, 100, 200, 300, the most dangerous stuff was not from the outside. It was from the inside. That's where the real danger, that's what almost killed the church. Um, Arianism, which is a, a theology that says Jesus is not God. He was a created being. Where did that come from? Some, some Roman pagan figured that out? No, that came from within the church. And what you see is the church itself spawns some of the greatest dangers and threats and enemies. You look at some of the, uh, you know, some of the cults. Some of those guys that started, the cults started out fairly well. Joseph Smith didn't start out where he was. He started out sort of in a church, but what happened? He wound up in error. So what you see, a lot, a lot of the threats that face the church, even today, are from within, not from without. I mean, that doesn't mean there's not enemies without, but the theological error arises from within. And Paul warned that one of the jobs of the pastor, one of the jobs of the elders of the church is to guard that, to be, to be careful and not let that creep in because if it does, it can kill a church. Yeah. Peter says they're coming. Jude says they're here. And he's warning about false teachers that arise from within. You look at the word faith movement, which, which is really pagan to the core. That's Hagen, Copeland, and all them. It has more in line with mysticism than Christianity. But where did they come from? Did they come from without, outside the church? No, they started from within the church. And, and went into error. So one of the jobs of elders in a local assembly or even in the church at large is to warn the church against error. And this is error that leads to eternal damnation. This is error that denies the essentials of the word of God. This is, we're not to fight over trivialities. But we are to fight over things like the deity of Christ, the blood atonement, the virgin birth. All those things are necessary. You start jettisoning, jettisoning those you're going to wind up with a Christianity that's not Christian at all. And that's what people need to be aware of. And so sometimes when it looks like the pastor's a little rough or something, you've got to give them a little bit of leeway because their job, here's the thing, when they stand before God, they're going to give an account of how they've led the church. You realize that. I mean, Pastor Jim has a major responsibility on his shoulder. God is going to hold him accountable how well he functioned as the pastor of this church. And that, that's a lot of responsibility. I, I was just at a great conference this last week, and one of the quotes was somebody was, I think it was to Spur, I think it was to Spurgeon. A, a pastor was complaining to Spurgeon that, you know, his church wasn't quite large. You know, he had just a small flock. And I think, I think Spurgeon, I think it was Spurgeon, said, well, maybe, maybe you ought to be glad that that's how big it is on the day of judgment or something like that. Like, like the more you have, the more you're responsible for so there's a great responsibility as an elder of the church to weed, feed, and lead. Um, and then we looked at the qualifications for an elder, and this is where we're going to pick up this week. Um, we find these in the, the best list of these in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you turn there, we'll, we'll work our way down through the text, 1 Timothy 3. And... Um, <coughs> Also, there's a similar list in Titus chapter 1. 
Now, 1 Timothy is written to who? Well, it's written to Timothy in order to help him set in order the things in the church at Ephesus. He was left there to establish the church in Ephesus, to deal with the things that are lacking, as Paul said, to straighten out some error that had crept in. So his job was to really help organize the Ephesian church. And uh, Paul gives the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble thing. So see there, overseer, episkopos, refers to the office, refers to the leadership. He says if any man, if anyone has a calling for that, it's a noble thing. And then he says this, uh, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. What's the idea of being above reproach? We've talked about that. It doesn't mean he's sinless, right? No, because everybody's disqualified. But what it does mean is when you look at that person, whoever that person is, when you look at that person, there's no glaring deficiency. There's no glaring moral deficiency. There's no glaring character flaw. When you look at that person and say, yeah, he's a great guy, loves the Lord, he's a great preacher, but boy, he has a hot temper. If, that, if you're known as somebody with a hot temper, you're in, in danger of dis disqualification here. Why? Because you've got to be above reproach. There can't be anything to hang a scandal on. Because what, what is the world going to want to do? To do what? Yeah, to, to discredit all of Christianity. And, and that's why it's really dangerous when these leaders fall into moral evil and stuff like that. What does it do to the whole church? It makes it look bad. You've got to understand, you don't sin in a vacuum. We live in, this kind, we live in this mindset today in America that, look, if you do your thing and you sin, well, that's between you and God. Don't worry about it. It doesn't affect anyone else. Oh, yeah, it does. Ask Aiken if it affected somebody else. It sure does. And when you're in church leadership and you sin... That's a blight on the church. And what is the world going to do? Well, I told you, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're just a bunch of losers. That's how the, church, the world's going to look at it. So this man has to be above reproach. There can't be any way to hang a scandalous thing on him. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about character. He has a high degree of integrity and moral character. And then he must be the husband of one wife. And we talked about that last week. It doesn't mean that he... It's not divorced necessarily. It doesn't mean that he can only be an elder if he's married, as some say. There's, it does not mean that he cannot be an elder if his wife died and he remarried. What does it mean? He is a one-woman man. He is a man totally devoted to his wife, whoever that may be. And if he's not married, he's not devoted to all of the women. All right? It's someone who's a one-woman man, someone who's focused in on one woman. And what can disqualify someone in this category is not only adultery, which we, those, that's the big one, but pornography can disqualify you. If, you. if you are an elder and you're in the pornography, you have no business being an elder. You get out of that. Why? Because you're not a one-woman man. You say, but I didn't commit adultery with anybody. Oh, yes, you, you did. did you? Yes, I did. Yeah, you did. I mean, that's what Christ said. If you look upon a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. You can't be driven, given over to that. What do you watch? Do you want your pastor watching Desperate Housewives? No. Good night, I don't. 
How about the Simpsons? That's even worse. He needs to honor his wife. He needs to, and, and that's that's a, you know what that that's that's an excellent. That's really good. I never thought of that before. See, I always learn something new. Does does your pastor honor his wife? Does he lift her up? Or is he always making fun of her? I, I really have the heebie-jeebies when pastors make fun of their wives in a sermon. I just don't think, I think that's off limits. You should not belittle your wife. You should, you should honor her. You should lift her up. You should exalt her. You should make everybody believe she's the best thing on the planet. All right? Um, don't make fun of your, your wife. That's to honor your wife. That's to be a one-woman man. And you could tell that. You could tell if a man is devoted to his wife. You can tell if he loves her and honors her and takes care of her and treats her with respect and dignity and, and love. You can tell that. Yeah. yeah. The Greek pornaya, mm-hmm. which you, I'm sure know, covers such a much broader spectrum of sexual sin mm-hmm. that is far broader than just, I mean, you know, just fornication and just adultery. Yeah, it's not, it's not just that, it's any kind of deviant behavior, period. Whatever form that may take. We're not to be involved in that. And if we are, as an elder of the church, we are disqualified. We're disqualified. We need to be a one-woman man, a man totally devoted to his wife. All right? And then, he must be vigilant, watchful. What does it mean to be vigilant and watchful? Some you have here sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Clear-headed. Clear-headed. He's not to be a buffoon. All right. He's not to be a buffoon. Does that mean that the pastor can't have a good time? No. But look, we we realize you 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 know those people are just always joking around and, and never take anything seriously. You you run into those people. There's always joking around and you know there's just. They're not serious about anything. Wait a minute. The pastor needs to be serious. He, why? Because he's got a serious job to do, right? I mean, that's important. You, you can't, it doesn't mean that you can't joke. It doesn't mean you can't crack a joke in a sermon. It doesn't mean you can't laugh. It means that there's a seriousness and, I like this word, gravitas. You know, you ever hear that word, gravitas? What does that mean? Gravitas, it comes from gravity which means there's a seriousness, there's a certain soberness to things. Everything's not a big game all of the time. Control. It has the idea of being control, self-controlled. All right. Sober-minded means to cl- think clearly and, and to, to have a seriousness about life. Why? Because he's got a serious job to do. You can't be flippant. You can't be... You're starting to get this here. I'm trying to explain it differently. There's a seriousness about the pastor. And again, we're not saying that you can't have a good time. There's not, we're not saying that you can't enjoy life. You don't want to go around with a frown on your face all of the time. But there's a certain seriousness about the task to which you have been called. And you can't just go through life treating it as a joke. There's a seriousness. There's a... There's a gravity about this person. When we do wrong by God, it is serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it, it, do, do you want your pastor to always be joking around and never serious about things? I don't. That doesn't mean I, wanna, I don't want a pastor that never smiles. But there's a seriousness about things. Sober-minded. And the other one here, watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? What's he to watch for? His flock. You've got to watch out for that. I like what Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your devil, your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Let me ask you a question. Is it easier to avoid a lion a mile away or a yard away? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the whole point is, the farther away the lion is, the easier it is to avoid him, right? What do most Christians do? They get right up next to the lion, then they wonder why they get clawed. Look, you can't do that. You've got to stay away from the stuff. All right? You've got to be watchful. The idea of being watchful there is to be serious, to, to watch out for things, to, to be on alert. To be on alert. Why? Because the church is attacked from all kinds of different directions. And the attacks come in all kinds of different forms. And if you're just tiptoeing through the tulips, you know, enjoying life, and you're not vigilant... You're in danger of being overtaken. You've got to be serious about this stuff. And I also think it refers to a seriousness in your own life. One of the things that Paul says, and I, can't, I don't remember the, the verse right on top of my head, but he said one of the things that you need to do, he says it, to Timothy, sort of along the lines of, keep an eye on yourself into the ministry for which God has made you a minister. Keep an eye on yourself. What does it mean to keep an eye on yourself? Watch it. Watch your own life. Watch your own life. How do you watch your own life? As a pastor, how do you watch your own life? Stay alert to possible you stay alert. You stay in the Word. You stay away, you, you stay away from temptation. Yeah, you got to make sure what you're telling other people to do, you're doing yourself. And so the question then is, you look at the Jimmy Swaggerts of the world and the Jim Bakers, were they on alert? Were they watching out for themselves? No. Why is that? Well, if you don't watch out for yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to bring reproach on the name of Christ. You've got to keep an eye on yourself. You've got to watch what you watch. You've got to watch what you read. You've got to watch what kind of entertainment you expose yourself to, the things you expose yourself to. You've got to watch that stuff. And it doesn't mean that you're approved. It just means that you, you're, you're serious. You've got to realize that the enemy wants to maul you. And the more you expose yourself to this stuff, the worse it is for you. You've got to watch out for yourself. You need to be sober. You need to be serious-minded. You need, must be of good behavior, orderly. What does that mean? He has to have a good report in the community. What kind, of, what kind of church would you be if the community knew Pastor Jim as someone who liked to drink a little bit too much. What would that do? Sort of kill us, wouldn't it? Or if he, uh, you know, if he wasn't, if he didn't pay his bills on time. How would that make us look like? Not good. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that is especially true for an elder, but it's true of all of us. What you do has a direct reflection on Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Don't buy into this lie that somehow you can do your own thing and it really doesn't matter. 
Everything you do, every activity you take, every action you do is going to make somebody look positively or negatively towards Jesus Christ. And because of that, as a Christian, we need to live our lives above reproach, especially the elders, but all of us need to do this. If you, if you say some, tell somebody you're going to do something, what should you do? You do it. You don't, well, God led me not to do that. No, God did not lead you not to do that. I was talking to a friend of mine. I remember when I was on the deacon board here, there were several deacons that committed a three-year stay, and then halfway through they decided that God wanted them to do something else. No, God didn't want them to do something else. They wanted to do something else. But they blamed God for it. Because that, that's the pious way to get out of something. Well, God led me not to... Wait a minute. And I, I jokingly told my friend, I said, the only way God would lead them not to be a deacon is to kill them. Yeah. All right, if you're dead, you can't be a deacon. That's obviously God interfering in that, in that spot. But, for, but how many Christians do you know that say, yeah, I'll do something, and they never get around to doing it? Or here's another one. As a Christian, I know this, is, this, this hits a nerve. Do you pay your bills on time? Barring catastrophe, are you a person of integrity? Do you pay your bills on time? Are you always late, always overdrawing the checking account, always? Well, what does that do? That brings a reproach on the name of Christ. If your pastor doesn't, in the, is known in the community as someone who doesn't pay his bills on time and can't be trusted, you've ruined the church. Even though that's true, that would be one part of the pastor's life or anybody else's that most would know about. I mean... Sure, you should, but I mean, that's not something that would become knowledge. Right, and, and, and you're right. In, in today's day and age, that's true. it would now, if you go back, a, you know, 50, 60 years in a small community, everybody would know that. We lived in a different time. I think sometimes that depends because I have known friends that I didn't realize that they weren't paying their bills until I went over one day and the electric was off. Yeah. You mm -hmm. what I'm so some you some you don't know. Yeah, Here, here's one of the things I don't know if you knew this, but when we hired Jim, we did a credit check on him. And most jobs do not. And in fact, all the pastors yeah. here. If you're a pastor, yeah. you're going to get a background check. You're going to get a credit check. You're going to have people calling where you came from to make sure you're not some loser they're trying to get rid of and pawn off on you. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it kills a church. Right. You got to be above reproach. And if you're, not, if, you, if you're not known as a person in the community of good integrity, of, of good moral character, right, yeah, it kills the church. It kills it. Yeah. yeah. How, how are you going to trust the leadership of the church with your money if they can't manage their own money? Right? <laughs> If, you, if they can't live within their own means. Now, again, what are we t Barring catastrophe. We all, you know, you can always have those catastrophes that hit you in life, a medical catastrophe or something like that. But by and large, as believers, we need to live within our means. Whatever those means are, whatever God's given us, we need to live within that. And if we don't, that brings reproach on the name of Christ. It does. And I, I never forget the time... I was talking to a friend of mine who said he wanted me to pray for his lawyer. And I said, what lawyer? He said, well, I haven't been paying my bills and I'm getting sued and I'm trying to witness to my lawyer. I said, well, that doesn't help any. Good night. Why don't you tell him you're a Buddhist? Sheesh. Tell him you're a Mormon or something. Don't, 
don't tell him you go to open door because that makes me look bad. <laughs> and he said it with a straight face and he just, over the head. I, he didn't get it. You know, he, he didn't get it. In his case, it was not catastrophe. In his case, it was other issues. Um, but look, we need to be people of above reproach. You want your elders, your pastors, those who lead you to be men of integrity, of godly character, someone who, people who are men of their word. When they make a promise, they keep it. I like what it says in Psalm chapter 15. Who does God want to hang around with? He wants to hang around with people who swear to their own hurt and do not relent. What does that mean? When you make a pledge, you keep it, even if it costs you. Your yes be yes and your no be no. You've got to be a person of integrity. See, the problem is, generally today, society, let's say just generally in society, are pastors respected or mocked? Why? Because a lot of them deserve to be mocked. And what does that do? That spills over. Look at your TV shows. The pastors on your TV shows, are they... Elevator, are they honored or are they mocked as buffoons and hypocrites? And Don't give somebody an occasion to mock the name of Christ. You reflect him. And when you do something to make Christ look bad, that's bad. That's really bad. You must be given hospitality. What does that mean? A lover of strangers. Stranger lovers. In what sense is he to love strangers? He's to be a friendly guy, right? If the pastor is not friendly, that's not very helpful, is it? I mean, I remember some pastors in my previous life where when everyone went over to his house, you just knew he didn't want you there. That doesn't work very well, does it? Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, he could, everybody just comes whenever they want. You know, that, we're not talking about that. But is, is the person a hospitable person? Are strangers comfortable around him? You've got to be a lover of strangers. You got, in fact, it says that some have entertained angels unaware. Look at Abraham, how he entertained the three that came to him. He threw his tent open. He was hospitable. Are you hospitable to people? We like, Don and I like having missionaries stay at our house. And whenever they stay at their house saying, look, you're hungry, you know where the fridge is, go after it. You know, eat whatever you want. You know, you come and go as you please. I mean, we want them to be comfortable there. We want them to enjoy their stay with us. We love doing that. But are you hospitable? Do you like having people over? Do you like sharing your life with people? That's one of the things of a pastor. You need to be a lover of strangers and apt to teach. What does it mean to be apt to teach? He needs to be able to communicate the word of God. This is for an elder, pastor, leader. If I'm to feed the flock of God, but I can't feed it because I can't teach, I can't be an elder. Now, can I do other things? Well, sure, there's all kinds of things I can do. But there are some men that just do not have the gift of teaching. They have no business teaching, so they should probably not be an elder. If you can't preach, you, you shouldn't be a preacher, right? God's not gifted you to do that. And what does it mean here, apt to teach? To be able to communicate the word of God, to be able to apply the word of God to people's lives, to, to be able to take the truth and make it applicable to someone's life. Yeah? And that doesn't necessarily mean we really the same kind of lecture no. and be a teacher. No. It's 
I'm not a preacher. If I had to do it, I could do it, but I'm not a preacher, really. I'm more of this. I'm a teacher. I like the interaction, you know. Yeah. Or a, a discipler, if, if you have one-on-one -on -one discipleship. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily that you'd be able to stand behind a pulpit and preach to 30,000 people. It means that you're able to teach and communicate the Word of God. And there are several spots in the church for people like that. Sunday school teacher, small group leader, pastor of the church. We all have that gift, but we exercise it in different ways. Remember we talked about spiritual gifts where someone might have the gift of teaching, but there are different ways in which that is exercised. To some, it's teaching small children. To some, it's teenagers. To some, it's older people. To some, it's preaching to the church. To some, it's a small group. All kinds of different ways in which that's manifested. But for those who are elders in the church, the, the, the spiritually mature, the ones who lead, they need to be able to apply the word of God. They need to be able to teach that and preach that word, all right, in whatever forum that God gives them to do. You need to be apt to teach. And if you... And you should be teaching. I mean, that's one of the things. I, 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 I'm often asked to do a lot of things, but I'm not called to do a lot of things. I'm called to do what I do, and I'm not going to sacrifice what I do best for something else. Daryl Farney tried to get me for years to be in Evangelism Explosion, and I knew better. There's, there's places, there are people that are well-suited well for that. And I say, okay, Daryl, do I give up my Sunday school class in order to do that? Oh, you should do both of them. No, I can't do both of them, Daryl. He'd work you to death, by the way. He'd, he'd work you right to death. If he, if he could get away with it, you wouldn't have any time to do anything. All right? You need, you need to, yeah, you need to choose what God's called you to do and do it to the best of your ability, whatever that is. And the elders, what, what drives them is their teaching, their communicating of the Word of God in whatever forum that takes whether it's officially as the pastor of a church, a Sunday school teacher, a small group, whatever. All right? You're going to say something? Yeah, quantity isn't the thing. It's if you're good at only one or two, or just one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so you've got to find out what is, your, what is the thing that you are called to do and, and do that. Um, he must not be given to wine. Now, this really freaks a lot of people out because what it says there, he must not be given to much wine. Does it prohibit him having wine? No. Now, unless you're a Baptist, no, it doesn't. It doesn't prohibit wine. It does prohibit what? Drunkenness. Drunkenness. And by extension, and we can make the extension here, I think we can make the logical, valid extension, not only is he not to be given to wine, but what else? Beer, soju, Alcoholic beverages, but by extension, what else? Drugs. Now, they didn't have the drug problem back then. They didn't have preachers smoking marijuana and all of that kind of stuff. But he's not to be given. He's not to be given anything that controls him, that, that brings him under its domination and influence, and makes him out of control. What does alcohol do if you're drunk? You're out of control. You say things you shouldn't say. You do things you shouldn't do. The same thing with drugs. If you've got a pastor who's a junkie, you've got a problem. All right. Even though the Bible technically does not say, "Thou shalt," you know, a pastor must not take heroin. It doesn't say that down here. But by extension, you can make the argument. Well, what's the problem with wine? The problem with wine is if you're given to much wine, you're overcome by it. 
Yeah, whatever that is. I had an interesting conversation with someone just not recently about Christ making water into wine. Yes. And of course they freak out and say, well, it wasn't wine, it was grape juice. No. <laughs> it was wine. Now, it wasn't 11, 12% wine like we have today. Most of the wine in the Bible was like 1%. Now, how long will it take you to get drunk on 1% alcohol? Any nurses? You have to drink all day, right? A long time. You have to drink an awful long time. And it's interesting. Remember, remember when the... Yeah, you can't drink that much. Remember when the, the disciple, or in, in Acts chapter 1, where they're speaking in tongues, someone said, well, they can't be drunk because it's early in the day. They haven't been able to drink long enough to get drunk. All right? 1% alcohol is hardly alcoholic at all. All right? So it's not that Christ made 0% alcohol, because some people say, well, it had to be 0%. It was wine, all right? Wine was a staple of the diet. It had, to taste, it had to taste good, whatever it was. But it was, it was not the alcoholic stuff that we have today. What does the pastor do? He's to be self-controlled, all right? He's not to be given too much wine. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a limb here and probably get into trouble over it, too. But... That can be expanded to alcohol. It can be expanded to drugs. What else could it be expanded to? Food. Food. I remember watching some, um, one pastor who waddled into the pulpit and preached on the evils of smoking and drinking. And I'm thinking, okay, what's going to kill you first? Cigarettes or heart disease? By the way, he died of heart disease. All right? Um, you have to be self-controlled. Within reason. You understand that? That's all within reason. It doesn't mean you've got to go up there and be, you know, like Arnold in the pulpit or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're all different, you know. But the whole point is, are you self-controlled? Do you control your physical appetites, whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or whatever it is? Are you a person of self-control? Because how can you go up and tell someone, listen, you need to discipline yourself and not drink, but you're 350 pounds. We know there's something wrong with that. You got it. You get what I'm trying to get at here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take care of your body within reason. Take care of your body within reason. You understand your body's going to wear out one of these days. That's the way it's been designed, right? It's going to wear out. We live in a fallen world. But try to maintain the thing you know, decently. If you've got a car, what do you do? You change the oil so it doesn't get all clogged up and die on you. You, you take care of the thing. Take care of your body. And as, a, as a, the elders of the church, one of the things they are to exhibit is a modicum of self-control. So that if you, if, if you can't control yourself physically, how can you control yourself spiritually? Right? And again, it doesn't mean that all of us are bodybuilders or anything like that. But you've got to watch yourself to, to within reason take care of yourself.
And, and how can you preach against the evils of smoking and alcohol and all that when you're dying of heart disease at 60 years old because you've, you're way overweight? You've got to watch that. I, I, I still like, the, I, I like watching Dr. G on Discovery Channel, Garavaglia or something like that. Jean, she's the coroner down at, um, in Orlando, and she had a show on the top five killers. Top five ways people die. I think number five was accidental poisonings. Um, number four was uh, infections. You get an infection and you die. And I, I, I probably got the other ones mixed up. Number three was morbid obesity and, and all the diseases that come out of that, like heart disease and coronary heart disease. Number two was smoking. And number one was alcohol. Or I think it was two was alcohol and one was smoking. Anyways, so there's the top five killers. Smoking, alcohol, obesity. Top three killers. If you die, that's gonna, most people die of those, one of those three things. What, what, what do each one of those three things have in common? Lack of self-control. Lack of self-control. What is the elder to be? He used to be a man of self-control. He used to watch himself. Yeah. Bible, cannabis, opium, it was in use back then. They, they did have some of those, yeah. Of them, yeah. Yeah. But not like what we see today where you're shooting up all of the time and oh, things like that. True. Yeah. And, and that's one of the, the things we, we, that's one of the scourges of our society today. He's not to be pugnacious. What does that mean? Fight. Now that doesn't mean you can't be competitive, right? Do you want a pastor that's just a milk toast, mammy pammy, laid back? No. Yeah. Um, but pugnacious has to do with wanting to fight people. What kind of testimony is it when the de head deacon and the pastor get in a knockdown, drag out fight at the annual business meeting? <laughs> By the way, that's happened. You realize that's happened. Yeah, they're, they're, there's some guys that they, they can never say I'm sorry or never, they're never wrong about anything. Yeah, domineer. Always got to be on top. Always got to be the winner. Um, that, that bespeaks of a character flaw. But you're not to be pugnacious. You're not to fight. You're not to want to win all of the fights and always getting into, uh, it says here, uh, not violent but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. What does it mean to be gentle? It means to have power under control. Power under control. The best example I ever had of this is a man I knew. He was a highway patrolman. He stood about this tall. Some of you might have known him, Noel Hack. His son is the pastor of LaGrange Baptist Church, but his dad, I told, I told Noel Jr. one time, I said, you know, your dad was the kind of guy that, you know, if the entire planet was unraveling, he would be just calmly there picking up the pieces. But he's not somebody you ever wanted to get on his bad side. Because he would, that, that I, I said, I saw him get after you one time, though, and I knew right then that, that your dad is not someone that you want to be on the bad side of. But he was always calm, always in charge. Do you want your pastor to always be jerked all over the place or you want someone who's stable, right? Mm -hmm. In a crisis, he's stable, he's, he's calm. He can hold things together, gentle. 
Yeah. Well, just uh, thinking, noticing some of the ones that are to come. Most of these are the fruits of the spirit. Yes. Patience, self-control, faithfulness, mm -hmm. gentleness. Yeah, I mean, you want your. Exactly. If you if you if you want somebody to tell you that you need to be exhibiting the fruits of the spirit, hopefully they're doing it in their lives, right? Hopefully they're a model of that fruit of the spirit. You must not be greedy. What's that? Lover of money, a money lover. What's destroyed the people on TBN? What are they love in love of? Alright, so here's the thing. Now, look, this is really easy. If you're watching a TV preacher and all he wants to talk about is money, run. Yeah. Run. If he's talking about prosperity, head for the exit. Turn the TV off. Go watch Desperate Housewives instead. Alright? Don't listen to him. Why? Because he's off. He, he's greedy. He's a lover of money. The pastor is not to be someone who's given over to money. Why is that? Why should a pastor not be a lover of money? Well, number one, God provides. But what? Practical. You can't love both. Because what will money do? Something even... Yeah. But what will, what will a love of money do? Makes you greedy. It corrupts. What does it corrupt? Not your only spiritual life, but what else? It's interesting. You go back to Exodus 18. Jethro shows up with Moses. And of course, Moses is just killing himself because he's trying to judge all the people. He's got two million people. They're always coming to him with all their petty problems. And what does Jethro tell him to do? Find 70 guys who can help you out. And what was one of the major qualifications of those elders? They are not to love money because if they love money, what is going to happen? They take a bribe. They, your judgment is compromised. That's the point. If you have a pastor who loves money, his judgment is immediately compromised. Because what's he not going to do? Offend Mr. Big Donor. Right? You're not going to offend Mr. Big Donor. You're going to allow your ministry to be molded by your love of money. You're not going to do anything to kill the golden goose, so to speak. And, and your integrity at that point is completely compromised. If you love money, you can't be a pastor because your, 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 um, your love of that money is going to overtake your love for the Lord. You're going to have your judgment clouded. You're not to be a lover of money. If you love money, as it says in, in Matthew chapter 6, you can't serve God and mammon. What was Balaam's problem? Remember? Poor old Balaam in the Old Testament. He loved the money, didn't he? So Balak shows up and says, I want you to curse Israel. And Balaam says, I can't do that. And so what's Balak do? He keeps upping the price. And finally, what does God tell Balaam to do? Go. Now I often got confused of that. Why would God tell him to do that? And then send an angel of the Lord to kill him in the way. Why would God do that? He was going to do it anyway, so God said, just go. And by the way, when the children of Israel took over the promised land, who was one of the first ones they killed? Balak. 
or Balaam. Kill him. And Balaam is used forever in the Bible as an example of someone who was a lover of money and whose judgment was clouded because he wanted money more than he wanted God's favor. What was Judas's problem? He wanted the money, the position, more than he wanted God's favor. Look, if you are a pastor and you're given over to a love of money, you're disqualified as a pastor. You're disqualified as a pastor. Because your judgment is going to be clouded. You're not going to preach the word of God. You're not going to preach against the sins that really offend the big donors, right? Because if you do, they leave and then that hits you in the pocket and you don't want to do that. So you're going to avoid certain things. You can't love money. You must not be a fighter. You must be patient and not a fighter. Going back to the love of money, though, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, like Billy Graham and his millions and millions of dollars. And Actually, Billy Graham made about, what did he say? I think he made 70, when all that big scandal hit, he, he gave out his, um, like W, whatever it is, the tax form. And I think his annual income was around 70000 yeah. And Bill Bright, right in the middle of that scandal, he was making like 40000 the head of Campus Crusade. And that's compared to these other guys that are making millions. No, you should live, we should, that's, that's the, you know, that's the flip side. We should honor our elders and pay them an appropriate level of, you know, of money. You don't want your pastor coming to church in a rusted out Volkswagen you know, with threadbare suits and things like that. But you don't want him to come in in a Cadillac wearing Armani. All right? There's a, there, there's, there's, there's a balance in there. All right? And if I know what our pastors make somewhat. I know what some of them make at the church. And in my opinion, they don't make enough. At our church, they don't make enough. That's just my opinion for all it's worth. But the point is, when you have, when you have people that are jetting around in these multi-million dollar jets and million, you know, like Frederick Casey Price whose uh, congregation gave him a Rolls Royce and he didn't like it because it was the wrong color, made him take it back. There's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with this picture. Yeah, and that's reasonable because you always got somebody that's going to tip it up high and somebody's going to tip it out low. But look at, your, look at your congregation and what's the average salary of the people, where, you know, what are they generally making? That's what you pay your pastor somewhere along those lines. All right, you don't want to keep him dirt poor, but you don't want to pay him f- filthy rich either. You got you to gotta do that. And I, I, for example, know uh, MacArthur, he, he has a lot of books and, that he sells and all that. He gives all of that away to charity. He makes nothing on his books. All the book proceeds go to charity or go to some Christian ministry. He is not in it for the money. In fact, they gave him a raise one time. He, he, he told the board, he said, I don't need this. Take it back. They said, well, we want you to have it because we want to see what you do with the money that you don't need. <laughs> we want to see how you, you want to see how you manage the extra. And, and if you're... Here's another question on this love of money. Is your pastor semi-open about his finances? That doesn't mean, you know, he, he gives you the income tax return every year or something like that. But I remember it's interesting when that whole Jimmy Swig- or Baker scandal um, hit the fan. Um, I know Billy Graham and Bill Bright, they actually 
distributed their, their um, tax return so you could see what they, they had. So you had to be yeah. And for example, Bill Bright, now it's interesting, when we, Donna and I went out to, um, we stayed at the Campus Crusade headquarters, and she got to meet Vanette Bright. Is that his wife, Vanette? Is it Vanette? And real nicely, she got her hair done with Vanette Bright. Remember that when you got your hair done there? And, uh, and she, drove a, she drove a Lincoln Continental. But what people didn't understand is some person donated that to the ministry for their car. It's not that they bought it out of their own personal funds. Someone said, I'm going to donate a nice car for you guys to ride around in. And it was not a Rolls Royce. It was a nice car, but it wasn't ostentatious, I guess. And um, that was a donation to the ministry. It was not something that he had millions of dollars he's got floating around somewhere funding. If you're reading Joyce Meyer, shame on you. Okay, go on. All right. No, I, I'm saying to other people, if you're reading Joyce Meyer, shame on you. Yeah. That right there. Disqualifies. Well, she's disqualified on several levels, but that sort of is the stake in the heart kind of thing. Yeah, it's a stake in the heart kind of thing. Can you imagine, if Jesus Christ were alive today, would he have his own private jet jetting around? No. I don't think so. I don't have to think long and hard on that one there. He didn't even have a place to stay. No. He certainly wouldn't have a million-dollar home with gold faucets. And I like... I like John MacArthur was talking about talking to people on a plane. He, he, he flies coach. He doesn't fly first class like Joel Osteen in Victoria. He's in coach. Yeah, you look at these people. You look at their lives, and it's just... I remember the great one was... Um, oh, who's the guy? Larry Lee. I remember, is he still around, Larry Lee? Yeah, he was around a few years back, you know. He, he had a program. He's supposedly the... God's gift of prayer nowadays. And uh, he was, one of the things is his house burned down. And he was doing a tour of his house that had burned down. It was all ashes and everything. And people were giving thousands of dollars for him to rebuild his house. But we didn't tell him it was his second home that burned down. All right? Look, folks. There is an awful hot spot in hell right next to Judas that these guys are going to be in. Oh, they, their streets of gold are right now. They're not going to have it later. And by the way, that's what Hens said. He said, he wants my, so I don't want my gold now. I don't want streets of gold in heaven. I want it now. Benny, that's all you're going to get. It. You're, you got it now, but you don't have the streets of gold coming up, buddy. You have something else. Why? Because you're a lover of money. You, the, their, their whole ministry is disqualified because of that. And you, you can see by their greediness, 
I'll tell you what, you want to know what their character is like, read 2 Peter chapter 2, and it lists their character. That's the character of the false teacher, who's a lover of money. The pastor is to be patient. What is it, why do you need to be patient as an elder? Because you've got a lot of people you've got to deal with, right? Ask any pastor, you know, and they go, oh, sheesh. You know, there are some names that come up, and they just go, oh. You know, I've been, work, I've been trying to get that through the head of that person for 20 years, and they still ain't got it. You've got to be patient, right? Yeah. By the way, how is Christ to us? He's patient. Boy, he's a lot pa more patient to us than we are to other people, aren't we? And as a pastor, it's easy to become discouraged because you say, you know, I've been teaching, preaching the word for 20 years, and they still don't get it. Sometimes people do. Sometimes it takes a long time for them to get it. But a pastor needs to exhibit patience towards his people. Yeah, Ruth. I just, I've always been impressed with the way You think you know it. And that's what you need. And that's the hard thing to do as a pastor to say the same thing different way so they don't know that they're getting the same thing in a different way. But it's a lot of patience. I remember something... I remember, you know, I, I, I had a little example of this in my own teaching ministry where I know this one person that's been in several of my classes over the years and one time I said something and, and all of a sudden they said, wow, that's really interesting. I'm thinking, I told you that thing 16 <laughs> times and you're getting it just now? You sat there with a smile on your face first 15 times and now you're getting it? Sheesh. All right. But you know what? We're the same way. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge of being a pastor is that your people mature at different rates. You've got to be patient with them. You've got to exhibit patience. Um, you're not to be a fighter, not to be a covetous person. Um, here's one. He must rule well his own house. Now, does that mean his kids don't commit sin? No. But I'll tell you what. You can tell if your pastor is managing his own house well. What does it mean to manage your own house well? It means that the pastor and his wife have a healthy relationship, right? He treats her well. He treats her with respect. He treats her with honor. The kids are disciplined. Does it mean that they never sin? No. It means when they do sin, what happens? They're disciplined. You can tell that. When you go over to the pastor's house, is it chaos? Or is there a certain order to it? Are the kids running in all different directions? 
Or is there, is there an orderliness? Is there, is there some sense of control? And why is that? Well, if he can't manage his own house, what makes you think he's going to manage the church of God, right? No. It's not a man cave either. All right? It's not, that, it's not like he's King Tut at the house or whatever. You, know, that's, you don't want that. But, but when you go over to his house, there's an order. In it. There's a, his kids are nodding chaos and rebellion. If you've got a pastor who's trying to lead the church, he's got three you know, preteen kids that are just terrors, you have to ask, you know, well, wait a minute. Maybe he should be spending some more time with the kids. Right? I feel bad, you know, you know about Billy Sunday? Anybody know who Billy Sunday is? The great evangelist of many years ago? Um, what, was his, what was the great thing he preached against? Remember? He was one of the main driving forces behind the prohibition. And what happened to his sons? They died alcoholics. All right? Took care of out there, but not at home. A pastor needs to have a, an appropriate balance between church life and home life. You can't sacrifice your family on the altar of the church. You can't sacrifice the church on the altar of the family. You've got to have both. He should be a good pastor of his right. Is he shepherding his family? Yeah. That's a good point, too. I think one of the, the most important things that we tend to miss when we're looking for a pastoral candidate is what can we do to minister to this family? Right. And I think that's a... Yeah. And see, and see, that's why you need elders, especially in a church of our size, right? I remember a long time ago, not a long time, but not too long ago, somebody's complaint said, you know, I don't understand, this one David Walls was here, so I don't understand why pastor doesn't visit people in the family, so in the church. I said, well, let's think about this. We've got 200 families in the church, right? If he visited each family... If you go to each family's house on a night, it would take him one year to get through all the families in the church. And he wouldn't have any time to preach or do anything else. And he wouldn't have time to be with his family because it's got to be in the evening. So think about that. You're right. We need to, we need to defer to the needs of the elder. Your pastor can't be there every single second you want him all of the time. Do you want to live your life where you're on call 24 by 7 by... 52, where you never have a day off. You've got to give your pastors some days that they can do things with their family. And in our church, we have that covered because we have a multitude of pastors that can fill for each other. But a lot of people, they get, they're very impatient. When, they want the pastor there when they need him, but they're not often there when the pastor needs them. You need both of those things. There needs to be a balance there. Um, he must not be a novice. What does it mean to be a novice, a new convert? Why is that? He's not mature yet. It doesn't mean he's not brilliant. But he's just not ready yet. 
He's not ready for that, that role. Um, if you have somebody who comes to know the Lord and, and three years later you've got them pastoring a church, I would argue that that's a little bit too soon. They're not seasoned. Why is that? Because what will happen to that person? What's the danger? Huh? You're easily swayed and, and you think, wow, you know, I'm, I'm up there now. There's, there's a pride issue, right? Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor and I've only been a Christian for three years. Look, you fall in the, it says, actually, you fall in the snare and condemnation of the devil. And what was the snare and condemnation of the devil? What, what caused his demise? Pride. You fall into pride. Here's the point. This is what I think. Before you're a pastor, you need to be spiritually around long enough to know that you don't have all the answers. You've got to reach a point where you realize, you know what, I don't have a lot of the answers for things. And until you get to the point where you realize that you don't have all the answers and it's not all of you, and if God doesn't do a work, you're, you're sort of sunk, you shouldn't be a pastor. Because a lot of times these guys, you know, they become pastors and they're immediately thrown into the spotlight, they're, they're at the head of the line, and it goes to their head and it kills them. Humility is, is lacking. You need to be a Christian long enough to know that if God does not help you, you're sunk. You can't make it on your own. You can't pull it off on your own. And you must have a good testimony to those who are without. What does that mean? The people without the church. If you're known in the community, how does the community sort of look at you? Do they see you as a buffoon? Do they see you as a jokester? Do they see you as someone without integrity? Or do you have a good report to those in the community? Those who are non-Christians, do you have a good report with them? Why is that? Because you're reflecting Christ. You're reflecting who he is. Now what we've just done here is we've gone through really the qualifications for the elder. And what's common to all of them? What do they have to do with? All but one. Character. Character. You don't, you don't look for a pastor and say, okay, has he been to seminary? Necessarily, right? Is seminary good? Well, yeah, it's good. But necessarily, does he need to be seminary trained? Paul wasn't. John wasn't. Peter wasn't. Well, probably Paul was. He was probably the brightest of all of them. It's not that you go to a seminary. It's not that you have degrees. You look for the character. And it's a character over time. It's not that somebody buzzes in and you sort of get a glossy look at their resume but there needs to be proven character. And how, how do you do that? It's over time, right? And this is something interesting. This is just an observation I've made. You look at the ministries today, um, the, the, the top ministries in the country, and one of the interesting things that's common about all of them is the pastor has been there for a long period of time. You look at Grace Community Church. John MacArthur's been there for 40 years. 40 you look at John Piper's church, he's been there a long time. You look at, you look at Ligon Duncan, and I'm throwing out names, or R.C. Sproul, things like that. These men have been in that church for a long period of time. And what has that done? What has that done for their ministry? People have observed them for what? A long period of time. They've watched their pastor work through issues in life. They've watched their pastor work through the death of his parents. Or maybe the death of a child. Or, or he, they've seen the pastor through thick and thin. 
And because of that, the ministry is deeper. The, the effectiveness of that pastor is stronger, much stronger than somebody who goes there two years and they're three and they're two and they're one and they're three and bouncing all over the place. But when you have a pastor who's been there for a long period of time and you've seen him mature over those years, that lends a depth and a integrity to his ministry he wouldn't have if he just bounced around from church to church to church. John Piper stepped down. Yeah, well, he's going to step down for, for a, few a few months. Yeah. But folks, it's all about character. That's what it is. About godly character. Well, next week, we're going to talk about deacons and deaconesses. So that's coming up. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day that you have granted to us. I pray that you would uh, help us to ponder these things and to honor those men who have been selected over us, who are your elders, your pastors, your shepherds. Father, I pray that we would be sheep that are easy to be led and not cause a grief to those who are called to be our leaders. And I pray that you would protect them and keep them from spiritual harm, that they would be examples to this community and to all around us of what a spiritual mature person should be. And we thank you for this time we've had in Christ's name. Amen.